With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files here on the Bastard News Radio Network. Um, we'll be joined shortly by Wilfer Riley. He's going to talk about a new study that he is working on uh, for the foundation, uh, dealing with charter schools, public schools, and plaques, and, and performances and how it all fits out. Also, we wanted to let you know that Jim Eccles will be trying to get him on the show in the future because he's working on a, a interesting paper dealing with black entrepreneurship, uh, past and present, the obstacles, but also some of the historical facts, um, kind of detailing the fact that black entrepreneurship, even in the worst of times, um, was rather impressive. And we're going to, so we'll be, so, uh, you know, so, and so Jim will be joining us on a future program dealing with that, but it is his birthday today, so I'm going to wish uh, Jim, my good friend, a happy birthday. And also to let you know a couple of other announcements here that we wanted to kind of detail is that Coco Konsky is officially going to be rejoining the show October, that so she's had some issues, and she, her dog Reagan has been under some very, uh, has had some very serious health issues. And the last time I talked with her, it's, uh, it's, you know, that they've been doing a lot of testing. And from my perspective, it may not sound good, so I'm hoping it's better than what I'm hearing. But uh, just to let you know, but in October, uh, she plans to be back on the show uh, uh, in October. Uh, so we're going to be seeing her. And today I had a very interesting conversation. Uh, and... And the conversation went like this. It it, it was fascinating uh, because I'm sitting. I'm in a secret. I'm in a secret location somewhere in Florida with members of my members of the right wing conspiracy uh, as we planned our continuous resistance to the Biden regime. And 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 if you look at this lady, I mean, she's a very sharp gal. I mean, she's like and. And, but you know, if you were to look at it, because she has really long hair, but down, you know, you know, down to her waist, you know, you know, thirty years, you know, fifty, forty years ago, fifty years ago, she would have looked. We would have declared her as a hippie, and we got into a conversation because she was talking about her son in college, and you know, and and his his struggles with left wing uh, professors uh, that, and you know, detailing this, and we were talking. Finally, she said, "You know, Tom." You and I are no longer the establishment. 
We are the counterculture. And I thought to myself, you know, here I am, 67 years old, a man of the establishment. At least I thought I was. And now I come to the realization that she's probably right. I am a member of the counterculture. We are the counterculture. Whereas Johnny Rotten, the former lead singer of the Sex Pistol, who once made the, who recently made this observation that he didn't think he would live to see the day where it would be the right wingers who'd be giving the middle finger to the establishment and it'd be the left who become the establishment. So and and now I'm gonna bring on the air with me. Uh Professor Wilfer Riley. Well, Professor Riley, how does it feel to be a member of the counterculture? Uh, this is actually something that I've thought about before. Now, I, I was actually a member of the actual left-wing counterculture as well. Uh, when I was in college, I was an Occupy fighter and was at one point asked to lead uh, a unit of Occupy Chicago. So, I mean, I still have my mask at home and all that sort of stuff. I and mean, this is when I was maybe 25, 24. So, I mean... There, there was that, and then there was a specific reason I left the left, as people have said, since Horowitz and so on. Uh, stuff, putting it politely, seemed never to get done. There was constant infighting between, you know, whites, blacks, gays, straights, men, women. Um, I come from a business and military family, so it, it struck me that these people just sort of didn't have their crap together, like the revolution wasn't coming. Um, but I think that a lot of those ideas, fascinatingly enough, did make it into corporate America. There's a great book about this from a guy I'm casually friends with, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, called Woke Inc. that's out right now. And his point is that if you are a pro-abortion, ex-hippie, party girl who's done some sex work, who's in business, you're not a housewife, you're no longer seen as you know a rebellious career girl. You're the absolute mainstream. Um, the main, the media is 93% left wing. Academia is 95% left wing. So there, there's an element of truth to that in that when you look at like the most radical things that like the religious right or the alt right says, it's all stuff right out of the 1960s. Like, I mean, I disagree with the claim like racial integration didn't work that well, but the other stuff like feminism has its downsides. We should really be careful with these new sexual identities. You know, a lot of women are happier in the home, just on and on. Like these radical ideas, quote unquote, are just the most absolutely trad concepts that everyone believed for a hundred or more years. So, yeah, that, that is kind of funny. And I mean, I, I don't think we're alone in noticing that on kind of the right or the center right. Yeah. So I, I would like to say it was one of the things that because there was this conversation, but you know, there's a, as you say, there's this element of truth that you just uh, look at and just say to yourself. Yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, you know, there's some element of truth here because if you, you know, you look around you, you know, the very thing that you and I have been standing for are seeming to be more and more the the things that are no longer just, you know, are kind of been put to the sideline. And, uh, and you know, and if you go to any college camp, most college campuses, uh you know, being a member, a conservative, a member of the right is basically an act of rebellion. It's like I say, so I just thought it was a fascinating conversation that we had this morning with her. I had, you know, with her because, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. Like I said, when I, if you were just to look at her, you know, you know, you know somebody, you know, if you would, she would walk up to you, your first response would be, you know, something out of the 60s, in the, you know, the late 60s. I mean, the way she dresses, the way she keeps her hair and, you know, and yes, I mean, she's, like I say, I guess now it's the new 
I guess now maybe it's time. I guess if I was at the point where I could actually grow my hair as opposed to losing it, I could now regrow my hair long and become a <laughs> the, the ultimate cult, you know, the ultimate cult, the counterculture there. <laughs> well, you actually, I mean, if you've ever partied with some of the people on the right, like I, I never have personally, but some of my Regnery co-authors have with Steve Bannon. I mean, a lot of people are almost going for that Jack Posobiec. I mean, people are going for that sort of pirate image. I mean, and the, yeah. there are things that the left and the right both have in common, like aggressively competing with the other side, being funny, being witty, you know, liking dancing and sex, although in the context of different relationships, so on. So you can present that image from either side of the political line. It's just that traditionally the people who are the rebels have done it. So the people that are the mainstream are buttoned down in the suits and so on. And then you have the hippies dressed in these flamboyish, outlandish costumes looking like gay Vikings and so on. Um, but now, I mean, again, the people that are in the suits, if you look at the deanship board of a top state college like my own, or you look at the faculty regency or something like that, most of them are going to be on the political left. I mean, I, I think the campus is actually a good example of what you're saying, where, I mean, in many situations, yeah. it's not hard to express yourself as either a liberal or a conservative, being honest. But on a modern university campus, again, you're talking about 80% of the students probably are to the political left, often the far left. You know, people are sitting outside the dorms just smoking weed and tossing Frisbees to each other while hip-hop plays. So, yeah, if you showed up in a standard blue blazer for, like, a campus dance and said you were – mentioned to people that you were a Republican, it would absolutely be viewed as a edgy, outlying thing. Some girls would love it. Others would wonder about your stance on choice, you know. So that that is funny. And I think in response to more of the people in suits being on the left, you're definitely going to see more pirates on the right. And, I mean, when you look at anyone from Donald Trump to Cernovich to Fremont, or Tucker Carlson not really caring anymore, I mean, a lot of people are sort of saying, like, this is, this is more the revolution. This is more the backlash. And I don't think that's entirely bad. No. Yes. Well, like I said, it's just one of those things. Uh, I mean, I'm, like I said, it was just one of this conversation because I'm reading, you know, you know, like I said, I'm not going to take anything Bob Woodward serious, uh, seriously with his latest book, but I'm sitting there. You know, it, it, you know, he said they're talking about, you know, General Miley and how he was about ready to arrest Donald Trump for – and I thought to myself, the more I'm reading this article, I'm thinking to myself, you know, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what he's describing is a military coup by the general. Again, I'm not going to yeah. say Woodward's never been you – know, you know, it sounded like a, something out of the seventh day of May, only it's the complete reverse. Uh in fact, if you re- if you remember the movie, you know a good portion of the you know the main you know the media at that time was supporting the right wing general who wanted to do a coup. And today, you could probably go on CNN and say, "Thank God for General Miley, you know, who played the Burke Lancaster character." Uh, I mean, it's amazing how things get completely reversed within a generation. Uh, but yeah. let's take a quick uh, break here. This, yeah, go ahead, real quick, and then. No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, like, the base of the Democratic Party, the unions and so on, is no more powerless or moral than the base of the Republican Party. If anything, it's the reverse. So, yeah, when they're in power, they'll behave in the same way. I mean, a left-wing general can as easily implement a dictatorial policy on diversity as a right-wing one can on anti-communism. Yeah. Well, this is Tom Donaldson. We're going to be right back with uh, Will O'Reilly. We're going to talk about... Uh, his most recent study that he's doing uh, with us here at the Foundation on Education. 
this is Tom Donaldson here on the Bachelor News Radio Network and the Donaldson Files. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, you can listen to this show and other great shows on the Bachelor News Airtime.pro. Let me spell Bachelor for you. The B-A-T-D-H-L-O-R, news.airtime.pro, and you can listen to this show and repeats of this show at 10, at 10 a.m. 10 a.m. and at 3 p.m. at 3 p.m. every day. In addition to, we do also have uh, themeyard.com. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, following this show on this network is You and the Law, featuring Chief Keith Humphrey and Chief Virgil Green, is a show that opens up honest conversation about law enforcement and their relationship with the black and brown community. So you can listen every Tuesday night following this show on this network, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. And don't forget, you can also go on our schedule and get the bachelor.airtime.pro. Uh, so two great shows back to back, and all right, we're gonna now start talking about. Um, and again, like I say, I am going to say, and uh, a full disclosure, uh, Wilfer Riley has done research for the Americans Majority Foundation, which I am the uh, project director of and a research associate, and uh, and he now is working, and and soon will be completed a new study that he's working with us dealing with charter schools uh, and performances with black students. And I will start off by, first of all, uh, tell us the, you know, the general thrust of the study itself. Yeah, well, the, the idea of the study is, are there things in society, for example, charter education, that improve outcomes for minority students and that would, for example, increase the black income uh, if they were more common? And the short answer is yeah. Uh, the data here is a little more complicated than I thought. First of all, it's uh, it's very difficult to get a lot of the data on the performances of state schools versus charter schools out of the different states. But when you do, what you see is that the kids in charter schools 
perform about as well as the kids in regular public schools, but there are very big differences between the two groups of students. So, I mean, I'm, I'm broken down about 100 pages of this data right now. If you're looking at the uh, black SAT average for students in state public schools, for example, it's 966 right now, which isn't bad. I mean, traditionally, the average for whites has been about 1,000 whites up to a little under 1,100 now. Uh, the average for black kids in charter schools is a 989.83, so it's, it's a little better. But what you also find is that charter schools take almost entirely black children from lower income, more troubled settings. So what I'm doing now is breaking out how they compare those, those black charter school kids compare to black kids from equivalent public schools, and they're, do, they're doing significantly better. Uh, so it, it's an interesting picture, but what you see with charters is that charter school kids do about as well as public school kids, but they are poorer, more troubled students to begin with. Um, and so charter schools do provide uh, sort of sort of a path out there. I don't, I don't think there's much dispute about that. You also see that there's an incredible amount of diversity in educational performance among the state. And this, this breaks down, we're going to do some pretty serious analyses in this paper, so this breaks down along a couple of different variables, like access to charters, whether or not students go to them, they seem to encourage the public schools to compete, um, whether students, black or overall, are localized in a few dense cities, or whether they're, they're spread out throughout a state that's more exurban, suburban. But, I mean, to give an example, the, the African-American score in the SAT exam, I mean, that goes from an average of 11.15 in Minnesota, which is above the national average for white kids, by the way, it's a good job, down to 8.45 in Michigan, where the majority of students are in Detroit and Dearborn. So, again, the, you, you can look at what would happen to to African-American education, or, no, or there's nothing poor, or poor white education, right? Uh, to happen Dearborn is Caucasian. If all students got the sort of education that charter students get, so say once you adjust for class, there's a 120-point bump for charter students. What would happen if everyone had access to that kind of education? What would happen if everyone had access to the same quality of education that exists in, say, Minnesota uh, across the states, in Michigan or in Alabama? And one of the things about this paper is that we don't want that to be just a hypothetical. I mean, so you get into a lot of data crunching, but you find that if you see a heightened high school graduation rate, for example, for a group, you would also see an elevated income for that group. Uh, if you see an improved SAT for that group, you would, you would again see better performance in life for that group. So a lot of these black-white differences uh, frankly seem to come down to, it's not racism, it's not genetics, it's things like what are people in these large, frankly often Democrat-controlled cities doing in the school system? Why is Michigan, I'm going to return to this, why is Michigan 300 points below Minnesota, an equivalent large nearby state when it comes to educating kids overall and especially black kids? So that's what the paper looks at. What are the outcomes that you can focus on changing, i.e. more charters, better education, so on, to make people do better in life? And I, I, I think I just gave the two big ones right there, but the, that, that's the focus of the research. Well, let me answer this, because here's the question, because you and I talked about this, and one of my objectives was to, uh, because like I say, you and I kind of approach each other on this you know, as an idea because I know you you know, follow up. Uh, I know you've been a, a fan of Tom Soule and you're very much familiar with his most recent book and research on charter schools in New York. And, and what I was looking at, I'll be honest, we'll discuss this more a little bit later, 
Because I was looking at, let's say, for example, with the McKinsey Group, you know, did an interesting research on uh, you know, on you know, students during the lockdown, and you know, where they found, you know, where let's say both you know white and blacks saw significant declines in test scores, uh, and they were falling behind blacks more. So I think if I remember my statistics, it was like four months versus six months which would be, let's say, 33%. Uh, the blacks falling behind even more, 33%. But they also took, you know, what they really were looking at is, okay, what does this mean for income down the road? And when you, if you keep doing this or something like this, you know, you know, how much of an impact does this have on someone's income in the future? Mm-hmm. And they were very negative on the fact that, you know, this could have a significant impact. Uh, and that's... You know, and that's one of the things I was trying to figure out. Okay, you, you know, if you get more graduation or if they do, in fact, succeed in charter schools, does this also mean that those blacks will end up down the road with higher income because of that experience? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you, you would have to imagine. Yeah, so yes would be the answer. There are a couple of different levels to this. I'm actually working out some of what might end up being a 30 to 40 page paper in my mind here. But level one is charter schools versus public schools. And to you as a client, I've been very honest up front about this. The charter school performance, either for blacks or all students, is often relatively close to the public school performance. What's remarkable about that, though, is that the kids that go into the charter schools are dramatically different from the kids that go into the public schools. So one of the least discussed facts in American education is that the charter school student body, which is, you might correct us, but 96% black and Spanish, something on that order, performs on par with the public school student body, which is 58% white. So that, that's the first point. I mean, and yeah, you would assume that if you, in fact, if you don't assume this, we're going to find out. But if you take a kid from a ghetto school, whether that's a Hispanic school in Albuquerque, whether that is a black school in Harlem, for that matter, whether that's an Appalachian white school right here in Harlan County in Kentucky, and you put them in a school where they're going to perform at the national average, you're going to see them go on to live a better life. Like, so, for example, we, we broke out a lot of metrics here, right? And the charter school college attendance rate is uh, 54.4% for that black and Hispanic student body. So, I mean, that, that's a metric where charters are clearly winning. And, yeah, if you, if you go to college, you make on average 400000 or whatever it is more in life than you do if you don't. So that, that's step one. And step two, there are specific chartered networks. So, I mean, either in this piece or in a follow-up, we can look at KIPP, for example, that produce better outcomes than that. So at one level, if you go to a charter instead of a public, you're probably going to do better. The same would be true for simply a Catholic school, by the way. Um, At a second level, if you go to a good charter school like KIPP, you're going to do better yet. And the question to some extent is what is KIPP doing that's so different from what even the other charter schools, but certainly the publics in a black or a poor white neighborhood are doing? And uh, to some extent, I think we all know the answer is discipline, training, so on. But that, that does affect income. Well, let me talk about popular because basically, first of all, one, let's kind of put how let's define charter schools. You know, if somebody yeah. says to you, Professor, charter schools, you know, define a charter school versus, let's say, a normal public school. 
Sure. Uh, a charter school, and this would obviously, I mean, you have to know this in the first paragraph before starting a paper like this. A charter school is a non-private magnet or lottery public school that's allowed to run under a certain specific model. So in the USA, ordinary public schools have to meet a few standards. I mean, you have to have accredited teachers with four-year college degrees generally, but, but not many. And any public school in a district that is accredited and that meets those basic standards simply to some extent operates. People think of their local public as, you know, the school, the school down the road, PS 131. It's been there for 100 years. Charter schools in general are newer schools that operate under a specific ideological framework. So the idea of uh, the KIPP schools, for example, is uh, what, what's the motto? Work hard, be nice, compete. Their framework is that training people to be sort of young gentlemen, which involves a lot of hours of study, um, which involves training in things like politeness, manners, a uh, big focus on getting into colleges, and people are encouraged to compete to get into college and to compete in athletics. Their idea is that that will produce a better student. The students are known as kipsters. So the charter schools generally have to appeal to there, there are three different varieties of state board, but have to be recognized as an alternative to the public schools that's not run by the Catholic diocese or something like that. And they can then incorporate their philosophy on student learning in, into what they do. And then there are quite a few of these. There's Success Academy, which is just focused on straight performance in English and math. So far in my, my numbers crunching, that's been the best performing charter network. Uh, but, but so on down the line, I mean, you've got Afrocentric charter schools, sports-focused charter schools, but all of them are a non-traditional way of looking at the public school. You teach students based on this certain idea of what will make them learn. And again, on average, they do at least a bit better than the public, and I think we're going to see uh, better than that. Now, hold on to that thought. This is Tom Bounce of Bounce and Files here on the Bassin News Radio Network. Uh, we're well provided. We are talking education. We're talking charter schools here on the Donaldson Files Ambassador News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys. Did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh. I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. And ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to auto repair, it's Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. 
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bash News Radio Network. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can listen to this show and other great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And you get there by the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And every day, this show is on 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day. Uh, so just go to bachelornews.airtime.pro and you can listen to this show on a routine basis, twice a day, every day, repeats of our great shows we have. And also don't forget tomorrow night, the Donaldson Files will be here, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, followed by Dr. Larry, Resist the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. Uh, and as I stated, I am somewhere in Florida at a secret meeting for my fellow conspirators. So who knows what we'll be discussing tomorrow night on the resistance hour. All right. Let, okay, let me uh, – here's the question. Okay, obviously, first, I want to kind of make one point. Charter schools are essentially public schools with a different mission. They're, yes. And I guess with the charter school – you, I guess I, I know I didn't put this on my original question, but I didn't know whether or not you may have this information, but how did the charter school concept begin? Well, I think, and again, we both are fairly familiar with education theory, but aren't educators. Yeah. Yeah, thank God we both went on and got degrees in different fields, so the exact date, yeah. so I may be a little off here. But uh, I think the short answer is that in the 1970s, the 1980s, a lot of people noticed that the schools weren't working anymore. Um, so one of the things that, now you probably lived through this, you're a few years older than me, but one of the things people forget is how complete the social revolution we saw in the 1960s and 70s was. So you saw some things that I think we all agree are good, like the civil rights movement. So if you're a black or Asian businessman, you can now participate fully in society. But we also saw you know, both mainstream and radical feminism. We saw the sexual revolution. I mean, Miss Magazine famously found out as late as 1970 that most men didn't know what a clitoris was. I think that's changed dramatically, but so has number of sexual partners, rate of STDs, you know, the anti-war movement. And sort of getting to the point, we also saw this in education. The idea that the schools should, for example, expand into bilingual education. That dates to, if I recall correctly, 77. Um, the idea of therapists in the schools, the change of the curriculum away from the traditionally patriotic. And just as with a lot of other things, like criminal justice in the USA at this time, um, the schools began to perform more badly, I think would be a, an accurate way to put this, and, in terms of dropout rates and so on. And many people in education observed the problems that you were seeing with the schools. If you go back to savage inequalities in the 1980s on the left or the worm in the apple on the right, and they began to come up with these different ideas about what could fix schooling. So the big idea on kind of the center right, and I think this is where we both fall, and I think these are the best-performing charter schools, was that the, the problem was obvious, that the schools had moved away from sort of traditional discipline, long hours in the classroom, smart teachers. Uh, teachers' unions are generally considered to be a big problem by people that hold this position. And so a lot of charter schools like KIPP and Success Academy focus on that, what you could call trad model. Um, but there were, there were other models. I mean, there are charter schools based around the idea that 
you should be more accommodating to students and more open to what people want to learn. So you have Montessori mission charters, Afrocentrist charters. But your, your basic description of public school, charter schools is publics with a different mission that are certified slightly differently. That is, that's correct. And that began around the, maybe 10 years into the modern era of education when people began to ask a lot of questions about the public schools, with the left sort of calling them racist and the right saying, well, these don't work anymore. Now, it's an interesting concept because let me put this way. I did have an education background. I mean, I was a political science major, but I did get an education degree. And, and this was, like I said, again, this was in the early 70s. And, and I would say it was the most fascinating experience because uh, I went to, then with James Madison College, uh, which was a premier teacher school in the state of Virginia. And, and it was kind of interesting because, you know, it, it, I would say they had a more – at that time, they had a more traditional view. I mean, literally speaking, I was in secondary education, and I remember comparing the number of education courses I took with a young lady who, you know, when I did my student teaching, you know, she sat down with me, hey, let's talk. Oh, boy, you really seem to know your subject matter. And I found that she was taking almost twice as many education courses in yeah. about one-third the uh, courses in her major. And we're sitting there looking, and she said, you didn't take this, didn't you take this? I said, no, not really, no, not really. And they said, well, basically, and I'm sitting there thinking, I thought, gosh, you know, thank God, they basically took courses in my own major. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and but what was interesting is that I, I remember going to an interview with this school district out somewhere in, in Southern Virginia, and this guy gets on this concept of, you know, there's new education, which I was used to word student-centric versus teacher-centric. And I'm halfway through, and I'm listening to this stuff, and I'm like, God, this sounds stupid, and I don't remember learning this. And interesting enough, after going through that whole interview, and obviously, um, you know, when you basically say to somebody halfway through the interview, God, that doesn't sound like it works very well, does it? <laughs> to which the, the person looking at you like, Boy, you're not, you know, you know, kind of have this look in your face. And interesting enough, the next day, you know, they discussed this. It, it was like a half a day, and they discussed this theory. And they base, and I'm like, I mean, you know, at our school, it was, it took a half a day to discuss it and dismiss it. <laughs> That's why I can describe it. And I'll never yeah, no, don't disagree. Basically. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I don't mean I don't mean to be rude about the. It sounds like you got the the training in the right way, sort of. But I've I've always viewed education yeah. itself as kind of a useless degree. So, to me, I feel the same way about philosophy to some extent. I mean, to me, there are actual techniques and tricks you can learn in your profession. So I am a quantitative methodologist, which is what, what I am in my capacity when I work with you guys and other major think tanks and foundations, because I know how to do high-level regression analysis in a program called Stata. If I didn't know how to do that, I wouldn't be a quantitative methodologist. And there are similar things, like I've sat in on ed methods classes where you learn how to ethically survey students, and I found them quite useful. You know, Socratic method teaching is quite useful. But a lot of the education degree seems to be stretching out something really, really simple, which is you know, you talk to students and they listen into, into a four-year program. So, I mean, in general, in a lot of countries and in a lot of private school networks, 
what you're looking for are people that have had one or two education classes, maybe Socratic teaching or something like that, and then a full degree in their actual subject because then they know what the hell they're talking about. Taking entire classes and, you know, different learning theories and the black learning style and so on, I mean, like you said, it, it often takes a half a day for intelligent people to look at that stuff and say, well, maybe there's nothing, you know, here at all. Yeah. And that, that, by the way, I don't want to keep promoting charters and Catholic schools and so on, but that's an advantage that the privates and the charters have. There's less control, if any, from the, the great teachers' unions, so there's no, there's no set requirement on what a teacher is. A teacher can be anyone smart that you trust around kids. Well, he's, I'm not following because here's the because here's like the the whole mix of this whole thing because now again, this is like night in the nineteen I mean this is like mid nineteen seventies and actually interesting I actually student taught at the school that I went to high school with I mean that's you know they had an opening so they say would you mind going back to school sure why not so I actually I was the only teachers I actually were teaching me just four or five years earlier and. And I'll never forget there was this one teacher. He sat me down. He said, Tom, you know all those educational courses? He said, I said, yeah. He says, I'm just going to tell you in about two weeks, you're going to find out 90% of what they taught you is crap. <laughs> and, 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 and he was absolutely correct. In fact, I can only think, in fact, the only courses that I could really sit back and say, yeah, that was useful, was my student teaching. Because it was basically, you, you know, you talk. You, you did it. It was much like the same way, you know, I was in sales for several, like you and I, we've been in the private sector. I've been, I was in sales for like 26 years. And, uh, and, uh, and I can always tell people, I said, look, I can teach you everything about selling in 20 minutes, the basic principle, and you'll spend the rest of your life learning how to do it and, and then putting it to your unique style. It's something that I can't, you know, you just have to learn on your own in most cases. Uh, you know, and there are just certain schools, education is one of them. You know, somebody once asked me, I said, you know, what's the best way to, you know, I remember years later, somebody asked me, what's your best improvement for improvement education? And I said, I said, yeah, get rid of school of education. <laughs> get rid of school. Yeah. And, and, I, and, the, and there's another, like journalism is another. I can remember Howard K. Smith. The, the, it was like the, you know, 60, for those of us in the 60s and 70s, we know Howard K. Smith because he was like an anchor man. And somebody asked about journal school journalism, he said, Tom, he just, and his answer was, I would rather have a guy with a liberal arts degree who learns, knows something about the world as it operates. I'll teach him how to be a journalist for three months on the job. And to me, teaching was exactly that. You know, give me somebody with a subject matter, and you will learn on the job how to become a teacher. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I'll, I'll be pretty blunt about this, actually. So first of all, I said that I think most of these degrees are a waste of time. Um, I very frequently, when I'm playing ball or fishing with friends or just at the barbershop, will advise young men not to go to college, less so for young women. And certainly if you want to be an engineer or something, I mean, we've got UK around here, we've got Georgia Tech around here, you need to go to college. But for a very large number of people that want to be something like a master mechanic, there's no real reason that the U.S. Marines or that man's army or an apprenticeship program or something like that couldn't do for you community college. We have that great BCTC system here. There's no reason that wouldn't work about as well as spending a hell of a lot of money to spend four or five years on a campus boning up your Frisbee skills. Um, so I, I think one of the things that's going on here is that as part of kind of the educational industrial complex, we have 
from what whatever you know bowels of thought we've spawned this idea that there are a lot more expertise degrees than than we used to think there were and i guess what i mean by this is we've always recognized that there's certain things that require a very particular technical skill that takes a lot of training to get and it's not really a blue collar skill so apprenticeship is not appropriate but like being a surgeon would be an example of this like i, I don't think anyone would trust a doctor that hadn't gone to medical school um being a lawyer, like as you know, past your 1L year, what you're basically doing is memorizing the major cases and going against each other in moot court to practice with them. You need to know case law to be a lawyer. Being an engineer, I mean, I could really go on with this. Computer science is another good example. But what we've done over the past, over the past 30 or 40 years is take a lot of fields that used to be learned primarily on the job. I mean, you've mentioned journalism, you've mentioned education, but I would throw a bunch more in here. Hospitality, sales itself is a subset of business. I mean, obviously you can get a bachelor's in sales right now, so on. And we, we've made those degrees as well. Even things like anti-racism education, if you look at D'Angelo courses. So people will now say absurd things like I am an expert in racism. And I tend to think of most of this as just being a waste of money. Like, first of all, you can't be an expert in racism. It takes 15 minutes to explain what racism is. And from that point forward, it's what you said. It's a know-it-when-you-see-it kind of situation. And point two, I think a lot of these degrees tend to attract stupid people. So every couple of years, there's a breakdown of what the GRE scores or the LSAT scores or the LSAT scores are, SAT scores, are for people entering certain fields. And in general, and I don't mean to mock everyone in these fields, but for people that are going into journalism or sales or elementary education or something like that, as opposed to getting a community college degree and then experimenting with maybe an entry-level position in that field, these are hundreds of points below what they are for people that are going into, say, banking or chemistry. So in very many cases, I guess, my impression would be that an ordinary smart person off the street might be more intelligent and more aware of what's going on in that field than someone with a degree in sales closing or magazine journalism or something like that. So a lot of the, yeah. a lot of people, I think, should save their money and go out into the business world if they want to learn something about what it's like to work on a trading floor or selling advertising or, or something of that nature. The degree now, itself on, yeah, on, confers yeah. more a feeling of expertise than the reality. Yeah, hold on that thought. Right, uh, I'll be right back. We're going to follow up with Tom Dawson's awesome files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me. I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. 
Welcome back. Welcome back to Dawson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm with Wilf O'Reilly, uh, professor at Kentucky State University, and I guess I'm going to take a quick moment here since I did a poor job at the beginning of introducing you, uh, Dr. R- professor Riley. You are an associate professor at Kentucky State University. You're also the sure. author of numerous books, including Taboo and uh, and, off, and and are you working hate on anything? Any other, other book? Yeah, yeah. Hate crime um, I'm working on it. And are you work? Are you working on any other books at the moment? Well, I want to get this project done, and I want to get another book chapter for a book uh, for Jason Riley, uh, a buddy of mine, done. But after that, yeah, I mean, I've been asked to write three books, essentially. And what we're trying to do is see how those can fit together in a year. But one of them is a look at the actual kind of state of policing in the USA. We've heard a lot from Black Lives Matter and similar organizations about how American policing is experiencing a crisis. And I, I want to look at whether that's true in terms of you know, number of officers suspended, number of people killed by police, so on down the line. And what I find, actually, is that policing seems to be functioning better than it has in the USA at any point since the 1960s, really. Um, So we've seen a surge in recent years that's been called the Ferguson effect. But prior to that, crime was at its lowest level in 40, 50 years. And a lot of that has to do with broken windows policing, comp stat policing. So I'm going to give the flip side of this idea that the cops hurt too many people. What would happen if we returned to the more – you know, hands-off policing that we both saw in big cities as young men. Uh, so that's that's one. Uh, the second is a look at higher education, actually, and that that's kind of close to the vest what's going to be in there. I don't want any overlap with your project. And I also I want to see what exactly the publisher's talking about or their specific schools they want me to look at. But a lot of those ideas that I'm hashing out right now, like too many people probably go to college, would be part of a book like that. And that's a fairly revolutionary thing for a college professor to say, but it's it's one of the big problems for young families today. Um, I read recently that in Britain, the average man doesn't get married until he's 31, and we're moving toward that in the USA. A big reason for that is debt. Uh, and finally, I- I've been asked about writing a book that's sort of the conservative or centrist flip of the, o- the old classic lies my teacher told me. Some of the things that for the last 30 years and kind of more liberal education have been said that aren't really true. You know, Native Americans were peaceful. You know, there never were any communists. McCarthy was going after no one. A lot of the stuff that our kids are learning now is just as nonsensical as that sort of Teddy Roosevelt jingo kind of stuff. It's just coming from the other direction. So, yeah, three or four potential books really within a year. We'll, just, we'll need to see if going back to sales, I can, I and the publisher can absolutely close what the advance is going to be selling. But I'm, I'm definitely not done writing. Yeah. Well, that's good. You know, like I said, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I uh... – uh, I'm now working uh, in the editing process of getting a book published uh, called the, uh, America at the Abyss, Will America uh, Survive, which is basically a book that is a sequel to my original book, The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism. Uh, so we're both in the, process, in the same process. But I want to kind of follow up with something here. Okay, you mentioned the idea of going back, let's say, to black, you know, you know, black you know, students, um, in public schools, charter schools. But look, I, I'm going to throw this out to you because, again, I can tell you, you know, literally when I, you know, again, I'm, you know, I, you know, I went to high school, you know, 60, uh, 69 to 72, and I graduated from college 70, you know, to, you know, 70, you know, in 76. And 
there was a lot of things that we are literally, I mean, you literally, we had, you know, history, we had geography, we had geometry, algebra, uh, you know, four years of, you know, English and language and books, and, and, which would include, you know, various, cl- you, know, you know, classical literature like, you know, Moby Dick. Uh, mm-hmm. And Tom Soule made this observation about Dunbar. And by the way, I, you know, like I said, I went to high school in Northern Virginia. So I was, in fact, the school I went to was Jepstor High School, which is I, I've been now understood is no longer Jepstor High School because, well, Jeb, Jepstor was a Confederate general. Okay. So, <laughs> and I couldn't even tell you what the new the high school is, other than they changed it two years ago, or a year ago. But Tom Sowell made a very fascinating point about Dunbar High School in Washington D.C., and he said this was one of the Best public high, one of the best high school when it was public in the United States. It was like ninety percent black, and with the Washington D.C. Era. It was, you know, it was a premier high school. That, and then we're talking about a period of segregation because it was a segregated high school that was mm-hmm. one of the premier high schools. And my question would be, and the and the thing I'm looking at here. Is that on one side of the equation? It is nice to be able to say, "Well, you know, you don't need college; you can go through this." But it, but this is, the second side is, if you're not getting the basic education in the high school to begin with, you know, the basic knowledge of grammar, literature, history, geography, geometry, mathematics—you know, just the basics—you uh, know. You know, these students are still losing out quite a bit. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I, I think your second point, I, I would never say dismiss it, but I think we can both agree on that in a sentence. Like, yeah, there's, I think that only empirical knowledge matters. Um, although I'm a spiritual man on the weekends, I'm not much for theology when people start explaining to me why God must be good if I, if I want to describe myself as a Catholic. I'm not much for philosophy. I'm not much for education courses. I, I kind of want to see facts. And we see very consistently, again, if you look at the KIPP data, the Catholic school data, that people who go to schools that have a traditional curriculum, let's not forget a foreign language, do better than young gentlemen yeah. and ladies that go to schools that have a more relaxed sort of art, touchy-feely curriculum. And that's not inherently surprising. Liberal schools often say, well, we don't teach people rote memorization of Spanish. We teach them how to think. But you can't think in English or Spanish unless you can speak the language, you know, unless you you know how nouns work with verbs and so on. So, I mean, those are two of your most basic classes, your English and your foreign language. And if you don't know how to do those things, if you don't know the phonics-based model for reading, for example – it's going to be very difficult for you to come up with some new genius level enlightened discovery because you don't, you don't have that foundation. So that I I think is true, but the Dunbar point is especially important because it ties into this whole conversation about whether black people are unique when it comes to education, or you could, you could say whites and POC if you want to get a little more technical. And I don't think so. Like every debate about whether there's a genetic difference between blacks and whites and every debate about whether racism slows us down a little bit centers on what's usually projected as like – you might correct this a little bit – like a 3 to 5% difference. Like, oh, this could hypothetically happen. I, my comment would be, well, why not focus on the other 90 
plus percent. I mean, it's very, very obvious that if you train people in that same kind of classical fashion, you're going to get pretty similar results. So Dunbar, Paul, Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, was the highest performing black high school in the USA, if I recall correctly, during segregation. Yeah. But it was also one of the top yeah. five or six highest performing high schools in the USA. And whenever people, the teachers at Dunbar were asked, well, what's your secret? They would just say, well, we treat Negro, they would have said, students like any other students. We have good teachers. They hire from the historically black colleges, and we don't, we don't tolerate a lot of nonsense. And it, it's worth noting that that wasn't alone. I believe it was Robeson in Chicago was uh, right up there. There was a school in St. Louis. I don't want to mislabel. But the, the black schools under segregation, this is important to recall, weren't all failure factories. They were on average poorer than the white schools, so they performed a bit worse. But a lot of these problems you see in the black community today, 70% illegitimacy rate, SATs 200 points off the white mark, you didn't necessarily see those during this period. This obviously isn't an argument for segregation, but there is a legitimate question of why were things going better then? What do, what do we need to relearn about the role of a father or a tutor or a good yeah. teacher? Well, let me follow up. Here's another point. Because I, I had this conversation with Jim Eccles very briefly, and I was, you know, because we got to talk to him, Jim was looking at some of the historical aspects, like, for example, Tulsa, you know, which was the, you know, before the right of 1921, uh, uh, 1921 was like the Wall Street of black America. And and one example, and, and I've always thought to myself, you know, the conversation I had with Jim, I said, General, is there something we – that blacks have lost in the entrepreneurship because in segregation, you had no choice. Your blacks had to establish their own businesses if they wanted as certain services. You wanted to, you wanted to be, let's say, you wanted a stockbroker. You basically designed a stockbroker because of the segregation era that was black. And and uh, and uh, yeah, and so basically. Uh, and, and it's the same thing with the education side of the equation. Is you know what got lost in this? You know, let me one example I kind of think of is is black baseball, major you know black you know Negro leagues, the old Negro leagues, where you know again there's segregation. You know, you know Satchel Paige had one choice: he go play in the Negro leagues. But these Negro leagues were very successful. I mean, Branch Ricker, Ricky, if, if you you know. You know, Branch Rickey was at that point where, how should I put it, he would look at an all-star game in the 1930s, a black all-star game, and see 50,000, 60,000 people show up. And then he could go look at the St. Louis Browns, and they were basically lucky to get 1,000 people a game. You know, he he knew an audience when he saw one. And, and, and yeah. I, I'm kind of looking at, I'm looking at the same thing with the education side. Is, yeah, I, this is not an argument for segregation. It is an argument that have we lost those, you know, has there been a set of standards that get lost on the way to integration, where standards that, let's say, made blacks successful in very difficult times, that they somewhat lose that, whether it's education or business, your thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, so I, I think this whole issue of kind of post-bellum race relations is one that's almost impossible to discuss because you have to keep using these caveats that are very hard to maintain. Like, well, I'm not defending the Klan. And I mean, I think to some extent it should be obvious no one's ever defending segregation or the Klan or whatever. Yeah. Um, but 
black people under segregation. I mean, I think both groups at the time considered themselves to be kind of, you know, hostile, former enemies, occupants of the same country, but maintaining almost separate worlds. The black world wasn't entirely a world of failure and misery. I mean, I think you'd have to be a racist to assume that. I mean, generally you had a town divided into the whites generally, of course, did have more money. But, I mean, the the notable colored hotels, quote-unquote, in each city or the Negro League teams, I mean, were performers on par with their white equivalents very, very often, perhaps a bit down. But something that would surprise someone who's been taught that this era was just endless grinding oppression to see. Um, so I, I, th- I think that's one point. Like, obviously, there were techniques that worked then that would probably work today. I mean, and again, they're very simple. It's like the best black schools – a lot of them were boarding schools, just like a lot of the best white schools. Um, they had smart, no-nonsense teachers. They expected students to perform. I mean, Dunbar every year didn't want to be the best black school in the country. It wanted to be the best school in the country. So that, that's, those are those techniques used there. But even beyond integration, I think that it's very difficult for us to discuss a lot of this. So when we talk about white flight, for example, from the cities, I think that the average idea from a black person or a liberal white would be something like, well, whites unprovokedly didn't want to live around black people, and so they left. And that doesn't really explain why did this suddenly happen. You know, by the 1960s, when many whites and black, many, at least among males, people had white and black buddies across that line, what suddenly occurred? And the reality, as you know, as I know, when you think of Kansas City or Detroit or Chicago, was that there were giant riots for years in the 1960s with the racist fighting that were caused by the death of Martin Luther King. So, again, there's a lesson there. Like, of course people want to be friends with their athletic teammates or their coworkers across racial and religious lines, but you need good law enforcement for that to happen. It, it, you can't have a situation where if you walk into the black or the Italian or the Irish yeah. neighborhood, you're beaten to death. And that, that's what you had in the cities for a while. And it, was, it was true for everybody, but it was easier for the whites to flee to the suburbs, and a lot of that was our fault. You know? So it, it, it's important to talk honestly about this. What happened in the 1960s? It, what ended integration in some of the cities? Collapse of law enforcement. You know, why were the black schools so good? Good teachers. Uh, Once we put aside these taboos, we can't talk about the pre-integration era and so on. Then we can have a useful conversation. Well, let me me throw the follow-up there because we've got about a couple minutes left here. I'm going to go back to the charter schools because it seems to me what the charter schools are essentially doing, and your research, you know, when you find it complete, may reinforce this, is rediscovering the very basics that were successful regardless of the school systems, because there are a lot of white schools that I can tell you, you know, are losing the same edge, you know, that you're not seeing the same quality of education uh, uh, as well. So, um, and but, uh, you know, maybe to me what I'm, you know, maybe you're discovering this and maybe it's interesting to see whether or not you do, but are we seeing a rediscovery of what was successful in the past? I think we're seeing a lot of people get disgusted with systems failing when it's easy to make them not fail. I think we'd probably both agree on this. So my honest take as a friendly observer, as an upper middle class black guy, is that the white community is now dealing with a lot of this woke poison that disrupted our community. When you're talking about fatherlessness, increased welfare recipiency, Crime. I mean, you know, black murder surged by a couple thousand over the past few years, but white and Spanish murders rose to meet them. 
We had 20,000 total murders last year. So you, these problems are now creeping into the white community, as you'd expect if there are fewer jobs, fewer fathers, so on. And I think a lot of people, both black and white, know what the solutions are. And that, when you look at Kip and so on, Jeffrey Canada, that's what kind of made a, what brought a lot of this about. Yeah. The, the problem I have with this is that I don't think we need charter schools set up in abandoned buildings doing this. I love them while they're here. I think we need the mainstream school system to teach these principles, and hopefully we'll get back to that. Well, thank you very much. I'm gonna, uh, this is Tom Donaldson. I want to thank uh, Wilfred Ryder for joining us. Uh, we're going to have you back on the as your study is uh, uh, progressing. I want to thank you very much. This is Tom Donaldson sure. of Donaldson Files saying good night. Thanks for having me on as always, Tom. podcast show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We want to welcome everyone uh, that is tuning in to join me and my co-host who goes by the name of T-Swag, T-Swag Humphrey. So we, uh, we've we got a, a, a good topic that we're going to be talking about uh, this afternoon, and it is going to be uh, about police failures begin with uh, bad leadership. So, uh, T Swag, how you doing today, brother? Hey, look here, man. I'm doing good. Um, I've told you, you, you you're slipping again. I, I have told you that I am the host of this show, and you continue to say the co-host. Oh, so you know what? You know, sometimes you be so silent brother that you know i just you know i forget and and so i'm glad that you uh are reminding me of of your role and my role so um so it is it's clear now that i agree i I agree i agree okay let's move forward then (laughs) all right man well, hey Keith, man, you know we uh, we talked about leadership uh, on the on the podcast before. We actually had on a a guest uh, a couple weeks ago who, um, you know, is a retired police chief out of uh, out of South Carolina. Uh, he talked to us about leadership, and you know, I think it's just really important that that our listeners understand the what happens when there is a breakdown in a police department and who does that fall, who does that 
what does that come back to? That, does it come back to the officers, or does it come back to the leader of the police department? Well, I think it's um, I think it's a little bit of both. But I, I do mm-hmm. tell you that the chief sets the chief sets the tone, uh, basically laying out their philosophy and their, their vision and the mission. Um, but you've got to have that buy-in from from uh, from under the chief. So, assistant chiefs, majors, lieutenants, sergeants—they have to be pushing that pushing that down. Uh, that 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 uh, platform of accountability, um, that platform of integrity. So, I think it. I think it's. I think it's both. Okay. Yeah, it is, and you know. So many things have happened over the, the, the years, Keith. Uh, when we go back to even talking about what happened in, in Ferguson uh, with the incident with Michael Brown and how that whole situation um, took place with that police department and with the police department surrounding Ferguson. And, you know, you can actually say uh, – without being biased, that there was a a lack of leadership uh, that occurred, uh, that happened uh, when this incident happened with Michael Brown because the police chief did not come out and immediately address the public. Um, And there were just so many things that happened the, the days after that that so many people questioned his leadership. And so when the community questions your leadership, do you think that now that those internally within the organization, do they begin to question the leadership? Well, I think, I think, let me say this. So the community will question your leadership when they, when it, when um, the officers are not, uh, are putting out certain things in the community. Now they're going to challenge your, they're going to challenge your um, commitment, and they'll challenge your leadership based on a major incident. But for the most part, it's what the officers are out there telling the community. Uh, when you have officers saying things, and you know the chief can't answer all those questions, and then there's a lot of times when um, you know things come up, and 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 the community gets one side of the story uh, that can affect the chief's effectiveness. But I think um, that for the most part, the community uh, believes in, in chiefs. Uh, the communities want to believe in chiefs, but when that one side of the story gets out, that can be damaging. Yeah. And, and, you know, Keith, and I think, you know, I think a lot of people listening to the show, uh, whether you li- you're listening to us live or you may listen to the rebroadcast show uh, that airs on thebachelornews.airtime.pro, and they may say, well, hey, aren't you, t- you two guys, aren't you in that, in that branch? Haven't you been in that branch? But you're talking about um, people that are just as equal, that are equal to you. Um, and I think it's important, Keith, that people understand that to have these these open conversations about things that are typically not talked about in this industry. You do, Virgil, and 
and I know that uh, you know a lot of times um, they aren't the they aren't the like you said they aren't the um, popular conversation. Well, they're not comfortable. They're very uncomfortable conversations to have. But at the end of the day, as a police chief, uh, you are responsible for the safety of your city. You're responsible for the safety of your officers, and people do have to believe in you. And um, and I've said this over and over again, Virgil, uh, the situation in Ferguson, it wasn't because the chief didn't know. He didn't want to know. Uh, that, yeah. that wasn't something that just happened overnight. He didn't, he didn't want to know. He backed off and basically released the dogs on the community. That's pretty much what he did. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and you know, Keith, and this is, you know, <clears throat> And not just to be uh, picking, you know, just pick on Ferguson. You know, it's just a, a, a topic that we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, leadership. But when you also talk about when you look at leadership, and just let's just look at Ferguson, um, a community that is predominantly African American, but an agency that was predominantly white males, and so you have to question and ask yourself, where was the leadership there when you are trying to recruit minority men and women to be a part of the police department? That falls under leadership. If you are not uh, trying your best or you don't have things put in place in your organization to make sure that you are recruiting uh, minority uh, men and women in the profession that also impacts your leadership. Well, it does. Um, you know, I think you bring up some really good points because the community um, um, is who you're working for, and you've got to prove yourself to the community. The community doesn't have to prove itself to you. You have to prove yourself to the community and that you are, um, you know, you are uh, receptive to their concerns. Uh, and so, you know, just people have to remember that when you get into this job, you don't, you, you got to prove yourself. The community doesn't have to prove itself to you. Exactly. Exactly. And, and again, Keith, I think, you know, it just, when we talk about, Leaders, uh, oftentimes people assume that, well, because you are in this position, you've got all of the credentials, you've got the education, you've got the knowledge. Uh, but oftentimes we've seen people that are being put into leadership positions who may not be the right person for that leadership role. But Keith, we're uh, we're coming up and we're going to take our first break, man. Uh, but we're going to come back. We're going to get back into this conversation of why leadership in law enforcement. Uh, another aspect, why leadership in law enforcement is not all about the rank. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odd. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast.
for Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Having trouble with math or science homework? Call Rose Holman Institute of Technology's Homework Hotline, a free math and science tutoring service for Indiana students in grades 6 to 12. Call toll-free 1-877-ASK-ROSE from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Sunday through Thursday. And a Rose Holman College student will help you with your math or science questions. The tutors are patient, smart, and pretty cool. Remember, it's a free service and a free call. That's 1-877-ASK-ROSE or visit askrose.org. Back to you and the Law Podcast Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And we want to remind you that uh, there's so many other great shows that's on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And one of those shows is uh, Locker Talk with Barry Barnes, uh, where you can hear about NFL, uh, which NFL just starts. So uh, you definitely want to tune in and listen to, to Barry. But uh, you can listen to uh, – uh, the uh, Barry Show every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at Blog Talk Radio at BlogTalkRadio.com backslash LA Bachelor, and the podcast every day from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, as he talks about uh, what's going on in the NFL. So uh, again, make sure you tune in to Locker Talk with Barry Bonds. But Keith, let me ask you this question. Uh, should leadership in law enforcement be about rank? No. Uh, leaders are on every level of the organization. Um, and, you know, you have what's called informal and formal leadership. Uh, formal comes with a title. You know, we all know that a, that a sergeant, lieutenant, and above, that's a formal, that's formal leadership, just that title alone. Uh, now, it doesn't make that person a leader, but that title has a sense of formal leadership. Informal leadership are those individuals who, whether they want to or not, people look up to them. Uh, people, uh, they're, that, they're, that alpha, they're that voice of reason. I call them the alpha male or alpha female uh, of an organization. So leadership, believe it or not, is on every level of the organization. People don't think that, and I think that we've got to get more officers to buy into the leadership mindset 
that it's not about make it's not about telling people what to do. It's about making the organization better and making yourself stronger. Yeah, and again, I think you know, Keith, there are so many people who are not in a position to be uh, a leader, uh, but they have a lot of characteristics and traits that uh, where people will follow them, and uh, because you know they may not want to hold that that uh, rank as a sergeant or a lieutenant or a captain or or even all the way up to a, a chief, but they definitely have some of the skill sets there. And I think really, you know, when you look at when you look at leadership, Keith, uh, at the end of the day, it's about doing the right thing. Uh, it's not about doing what's popular. It's about doing what's right uh, and what's right for the community and what's right for the agency. And I think so many times, you know, you get people get caught up into, as we say, the politics of things, uh, and that politics uh, really gets in the middle of some uh, guys being better leaders than what they are. Well, you know, let me let me say this, man. Um, you, the thing that gets me, you know, we talk about formal and informal leaders, and, and I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. I also believe that there's a such thing as a, a formal servant leader and an informal servant leader. But I, I think the thing that makes our job so difficult, Virgil, and to the listeners, is that we are, we are hired uh, to bring our level of expertise uh, into an organization, whether that's to be a transformational leader, a change agent, or what. That's what we're hired for. We're not hired to make the easy decisions. I think the thing that gets you is when you go into an organization and you hear people say, well, we want change, we want somebody from the outside, somebody who's broad-minded, who basically is a visionary. And then when you start making decisions that are not in line with that organization or that subculture's uh, agenda, then you become a bad chief. This is the thing that gets me. How do you know when you are a never been in a supervisory role, you've only been responsible for yourself, how do you know when somebody's making the management move? How do you, how do mm-hmm. you know that? Is it is it because you watch uh, you know you you watch people, or is it because it doesn't meet your agenda? And those are the things that, that, that leaders encounter on a daily basis, people telling them they don't want you to they don't want you to advise them how to do their job, but they want to tell you they don't want you they don't want you advising downward, but they want to advise upward. And they want to skip all the ranks in between the chief and they want to go directly to the chief, it's the chief's fault. This is these are people who have no desire to promote. These are sometimes people who stay in trouble. But they want to be able to tell the chief how to do his job, that or her job. That's the that's the interesting part about it. And they can never tell you specifically what you're doing wrong, but they just know you're doing it wrong. Um, a lot of people fold on that, but that's where confidence and, and faith comes in play with a leader. Uh, you have to be confident in your ability to do your job, and you have to make a decision: Are you going to work? Or are you going to fight? Because you can't do both. So when you do, you work because that's what you're hired to do. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. And and Keith, you know, right before the break, you know, uh, I brought up, you know, we talked about Ferguson and we talked about a community that was, uh, that is, uh, has a high percentage of, of African American, but at that time, the police department did not reflect what the community looked like. And so, uh, you know, over the past year or so, with so many things that have happened with George Floyd, even all the way back to Michael Brown, and all the protesting, um, you continue to hear people who are who are protesting, who continue to say, you know, why doesn't the police department look like the the city that you that you all are providing police services to? So people have asked the question: Does that come back? on the leader of the organization to make sure that that agency is doing everything that they can to recruit minorities within those police departments instead of saying, well, you know, hey, we're out here, we're trying, but we're not really getting a lot of, uh, a lot of applicants. Uh, how does that play into the role of the leader of that organization? Well, it goes back to what I said earlier, Virgil. You, you got to set the tone and your expectations. Um, and 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 one of the things that I still think we're uncomfortable with doing is we're uncomfortable with with confirming to our communities that we are looking to hire uh, minorities, uh, including females, uh, and and continually saying that and tell and talk about the importance of that. Why is it? Some people are just comfortable. I mean, with, they're very uncomfortable with that. And so you have to try new things, you know, the Zoom thing. You know, the chief has to say, this is what my expectations are. Then you have to have the right people in those positions that are also visionary. It doesn't mean that you're going to always agree, but you got to have people who aren't afraid to make those decisions. You've got to think outside of the box, Virgil. Can you hear me? Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah you got to think yeah, outside you do. the box. And, and you've got to push that down to your people. And it, it's one of those things where sometimes you have to make the decision on, okay, what do you need to get this area jump started? Because, you know, we can say that all day. You know, we're, there's difficulty in recruiting. We're not getting the numbers. But at the end of the day, you still have to try hard. You know, you have to be willing to try new things. You have to be willing to see where I can adjust in the existing things that you're doing. But, you know, that's what a leader does. A leader is there to have vision and, and share that vision and, and hope that everybody joins into that vision in order to make the organization. Because today's another day, but tomorrow brings something different, and you have to be prepared to address that something different and something new. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, Keith, I want to remind our listeners that uh, if you're listening to the show live uh uh, on 646-929-0130 is a call-in number. But if you're also uh, in the chat room, uh, the chat room is open. You can leave a message uh, in the chat room. That message will get to us. Or if you if you are on live with this, uh, let the producer know if you want to come on air. Uh, he's screening calls. And uh, if you got a question or a comment you'd like to come on, please do so or just Leave your your message or leave your comments, and we'll get that, and we'll we'll get that answered uh, during the show. But we also want to remind uh, 
all of our listeners that if you miss any parts of this live broadcast show, you can go back and listen at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. That's thebachelornews.airtime.pro. And uh, follow uh, you and the law uh, broadcast show. But, Keith, you know, uh, so many, even internally, uh, you've got some guys who, and men and women, uh, especially some of large agencies, uh, they may not even see uh, the police chief that often. They may not see um, the the person who they may want to interact with. Uh, but how is that an issue with as far as the leadership? Repeat that question again, Virgil. So when you've got individuals that are within the police department who uh, they may, the only time they may have seen the police chief was at when they started the police academy, uh, they may not have seen he or she, you know, in, in a number of years. Uh, so when you've got officers who are within these departments who feel like, you know, man, I, the chief can't be that busy where, you know, uh, it, I haven't seen him in he or she in a couple of years. So what does that say about the leader of that organization who is not uh, being, uh, he is making himself, he or she making themselves available to everybody within the police department? Well, I, I will tell you, man, that's easier said than done. You know, I used to be able to I say, you know, man, that's not difficult for a chief to do. But, you know, when I got there, man, I first got here, I, I made every attempt to, to meet and see as many people as I can, and I tried to continue to do that. Um, I haven't been able to do it as much lately, but, you know, but people see me. I mean, if nothing else, I, I, I have seven or eight facilities that I'm responsible for, and I try to go by each one of those facilities at least once a month to see people when I see officers out on calls when I'm off, you know, go up and, and say hi to them, things like that talk. So it's it's important for them to see you, but I think they still understand. I think some people would prefer not to see you. Some people want to see you. Uh, but you got to yeah. do what's best. People need to know you. Yeah. Well, hey, Keith, man, we're coming up on taking our uh, second break, man. So we're going to take this break. We're going to get back into the topic of, Police failures begin with bad leadership. But you're listening to You Under Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Your mother-in-law just dropped in. It's dinner time, and she looks hungry. Time for a quick dinner. Think fast. Think eggs. Like an omelet with tomatoes and cheese. Quick, easy, delicious. So, she loves dinner, compliments your creativity, and finally admits you're not a shameless social climber who stole her baby boy away. All thanks to the incredible edible egg. For other quick dinner, lunch, and snack ideas, visit AEB.org. The incredible edible egg. The American Egg Board. Have you seen that new plastic coffee container? Did you know it actually absorbs aroma from the coffee? At Maxwell House, we think the aroma should stay where it belongs, in the coffee, not the container. Our steel can won't absorb our rich coffee aroma, and unlike plastic, it's a perfect barrier against coffee's worst enemies, moisture and oxygen. So choose Maxwell House with the fresh steel can and make every day good to the last drop.
Welcome back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you missed this broadcast, you go to the bachelornews.airtime.pro. The bachelor with the T, news.airtime.pro. Here you can hear this show and other shows. Interesting advertising with them. Hit us up at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Uh, guys, I um, have one question for you, and that is, um, what if the training from the officer who uh, goes through the ranks and becomes the chief is never there? Um, you know, it's, it's like any other job. If you are manager of McDonald's and you don't you don't train somebody the McDonald's way, and that person becomes a manager, he's gonna or she gonna train that person the wrong way as well, and it's, it's a cycle. So, what about that? And is that part of the the lack of um, failed leadership in some cases? Yeah, it is. I, 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 I can answer that. That's a good. That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the questions that I ask is that um, I ask people, "Who are you mentoring?" Uh, there are people that think they're mentoring, and they're really not. I don't think people really understand what mentoring is. I don't think people really understand what leadership training is. Uh, there are people that will read a book and say they're a leader, um, but they haven't actually gone through leadership training. That's why I'm really a big proponent of bringing outside training in because it, 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 refresh, it, it gives people a fresh look at things and give people a different perspective. Um, you can't have the same people teaching the same people all the time with the same attitudes and the same uh, goals and objectives or the same philosophies. So I'm a firm believer that you have to have formalized leadership training. And I'm thankful that I came from a state that made it mandatory for formalized leadership training uh, when you promote it to, to each and every rank. Um, that's That's because – because that's, that was a priority. Leadership training has to be a priority. Uh, leadership is something you live every day. You don't just go to a class. You don't go to a, go read a book. You know, I, this is one of the things I hate to see people do. I hate to see people go to a class. They come back. They, they spurt out all this uh, information that they receive, and you gung-ho about it, and the next thing you know, everything's died. Uh, you know, that's, that's – uh, so you're right. You have to get the right training. Um, that's why you see police departments go outside to find additional to, to hire chiefs. I mean, that's why you see mayors and city managers do that. Um, but that's pretty, you know, it is important the proper training because what I can put on a training. There's so much training out here on leadership and accountability, but it's is it quality training, and that's the key, quality training. And cream always rises to the top. And and tell I'm telling you, someone who is a good leader, no matter what you throw at that individual, they're going to be able to they're going to be able to handle it. Um, and it's not just theory. This job is not all about theory. I mean, there's theory there, but all it's about practical and about common sense. And and that's what being a leader is. Well, Keith, let me ask you this question: uh, Should Agencies rethink how police how that police leadership training is implemented. I think I think it has to be. Uh, there, there's there's three three there's several ways you can do that. I think when you have police departments that have shown that they are not going to do that, I think that's where it's important for you to have those uh, civilian review boards uh, or outside resources. 
that make it manda- that mandate uh, that that certain types of training. I think that there needs to be state statute regarding certain types of training. Uh, I think that uh, there needs to be some format of mandatory. I think there needs to be some format that these are the trainings that you have to have in order to maintain, in order to be a, a good standing in law enforcement. But I also think it's that it's the police chief has to uh, has to establish that training, and and his boss or her boss has to hold them accountable. To that so every year you you should be doing an audit of your training to make sure that it is meeting the national standards, industry standards, the needs of the community, and the needs of the officers. You can't do the same training every day. I mean, every year. Yeah. You've got to bring in outside training. And so I think I think it depends on what the situation is, but I think somebody has to. You can't just leave it up to the officers or the first. You, you have to, the chief and the command staff have to make this is what we're going to do, and, and you can't make it. Um, you know, there's no there's no open discussion, but there's no discussion about it. This is what we're going to do, and this is why. Yeah, and I think Keith, oftentimes, uh, you know, guys think just because they went through some type of a specialized, you know, well, I'm not going to say specialized training, but some type of leadership training uh, that they went to a 40 hour class on leadership training, uh, and and so now that gives them the uh the skills to to be a, a leader it's it's not about just sitting in a class for 40 hours uh you know four days or five days a week it, it's a it there's more to becoming a leader uh especially with the authority and power that you have so can you it, it, this scenario Keith have you seen this just like I have you one day you are a, a sergeant. Next thing you know, the mayor or city manager calls you up and says, Hey, I want to make you my chief. So all of a sudden here's this big, you know, little celebration. Uh now you're standing in front of guys that you were just equal with, but now you're the uh you're the police chief. You have really no formal supervisor retraining and the next thing you you find out well it may be another four or five months before you are able to attend some kind of leadership training so how does that impact that person's ability to be a leader and how does that impact those individuals who are looking at him saying you know just a week ago man you were just like me but now you're the chief you know, man, it's it's a difficult situation, and I tell young supervisors that that you've got to realize that last week you were one of them, and this week you're one of us, and and that's why I, I firmly believe that you can't be friends with the individuals that you can be you can be cordial and professional and and respectful, but you can't be good friends with those individuals that you supervise. Uh, you've got to make a decision. Um, you got to make a decision regarding what your, um, you know, what, what, which road are you going to take? Because at some point you're going to have to um, address something that that individual do, you know. But I tell people all this: 
a, a person who respects you is not going to put you or, or themselves in a situation where you've got to discipline them. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you know, Keith, I think when we talk about uh, putting people in leadership roles, uh, you know, what also comes along with that is for them to put themselves uh, in a position to be around great mentors and, and like-minded people who can uh, who can help them at the same time that they're uh, that they're rising through the ranks. Uh, because oftentimes, Keith, you know, we've seen people who get into leadership positions, and once they get into those leadership positions, you've got some people who are within the, the, the police departments, they feel now that person is just a, a company man. They're just now they've got the position that they wanted, but they have forgotten where they have came from. So, uh, and oftentimes, that that kind of uh, damages some friendship because you know you were one way a year ago. Well, now since you made the promotional uh, to a deputy chief or or to a uh, a major or a captain, then you kind of have forgotten. Well, now I'm in this position, so I've got to I've got to conform to the position. Yeah, it, it's it's everybody can't do the job, man. And and those are discussions that people have to have with themselves. Um, because the minute you you go to discipline somebody, um, the minute you go to discipline somebody, uh, they're going to bring up some things that they've seen you do or some things they've heard you say. So that's going to be interesting. You know that that's interesting. so everybody. Like I said, you, you got to have those long talks with yourself. Uh, to, to make to see if that's something that you're interested in doing. Yeah, and again, Keith, you know, everybody is is not cut out to be a leader, and not everybody wants to be a leader. Not everybody wants to become a police chief. Not every, and so you got individuals who, you know, and I've heard this uh, throughout my career. That uh, career, Keith, that uh, you've got certain people who feel like certain individuals are groomed, that they're hand-picked, and they are groomed to become uh, uh, the uh, next police chief. Uh, they may go through the academy with, with some of these same people, and the next thing you know, here is one individual who is being selected, selected and is being groomed for that position. So and you got individuals looking around, it's kind of like, so what makes that person any different than the other 45 people that went through the same academy class? You know, man, it's all about heart too, Virgil. Who who has the heart? Who has the heart and the courage to do the job? And what's your purpose for wanting wanting those positions? What's your purpose? You want to make a difference? You want more money? They don't pay us enough money to do this job, man. With all the, you know, the the, the long hours and and things like that, they don't pay you enough. So it's all about heart and dedication. Well, you know, Keith, you bring up a good good point. You got, you know, no amount of money really uh, can, for the 
the the job that that entails to be a police chief. But you've got some people who have said when they find out, oh man, the the police chief up in Boston, this he makes three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year. Man, how, you know, how does a police chief make three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year? He's making six figures. Uh, and, and you got yeah. some people who are feeling like, well, but then when something happens at the police uh, within that agency, questions come up about this person's uh, leadership skills. Well, let me tell you something. It is it's a it's a it's a job that not a lot of people can do. And people can tell you how to do your job. This is just like, you know, I think police chiefs, especially in this day and time, are armchair quarterback more than any other profession or any other position uh, that you that you have. And uh, yeah, uh, hey, I mean, there's other hey, positions Keith, that, that. But go, yeah, go go ahead, man. Hey, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just noticed that we're coming up on our on our last break. So we're going to take this break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to be get into the topic of police leadership. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Come tap your feet and snap your fingers at the home. Having trouble with math or science homework? Call Rose Holman Institute of Technology's Homework Hotline, a free math and science tutoring service for Indiana students in grades 6 to 12. Call toll-free 1-877-ASK-ROSE from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Sunday through Thursday. And a Rose Holman College student will help you with your math or science questions. The tutors are patient, smart, and pretty cool. Remember, it's a free service and a free call. That's 1-877-ASK-ROSE or visit askrose.org. If you're an African-American man, you need to know about oral cancer. Oral cancer is more common in African-American men than in any other group in the U.S. If you have a sore or lump in your mouth that doesn't go away after two weeks, see a doctor or a dentist. Most often, these symptoms don't mean cancer, but it's important to get them checked. If you do have oral cancer, it can be treated more successfully if it's caught early. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. Rebroadcast. Um, you can hear this show and any of the other shows at the Bachelor News at Airtime Pro. In addition to all the other uh, great shows that we have there, as we wobble along here, uh, guys. Here, uh, I want to um, uh, a couple of things that came across. Uh, one of which I'll ask you guys um, personally off the air. But start with the stuff that I'm really getting. You guys have been talking about, you know, what if one of your friends works at an agency? What about nepotism? What about, you know, your cousin or your brother or your sister or your uncle want to come work for you, you chief, or you're a sergeant, and, or wherever you are? You got some rank. What about those? How do you handle that? Um, how do you handle the envy? He ain't all that. 
I remember managing, um, uh, they're mostly out in the Midwest, TCBY yogurt stores, when, you know, back in the day, I ran a few stores, I was a uh, GF, GM, and I hired my cousin to run as a supervisor, he moved up to manager, but then he was, he was screwing up, like, he wasn't following protocol, I'm getting calls from my boss, and so I gave him time, and then I let him go, and he had an attitude, and to this day, he has an attitude, so if, if the performance is not there, and Chief Hump, Chief uh, Green, you know, you guys are, you the big dogs, and then you hiring people, and they not doing the job, there can't be any animosity there, but of course, they may say, oh, he think he all that, and and and, um, and then the third element of that is, you know, they go to the race card against you, oh, he Uncle Tom, oh, he know, he been hanging with the white boys, but now he think he all that, and this and that, you, yeah, I mean, profession, your agency can't be any different than any societal uh, employment anywhere. So if you can address those three folds, if you can remember, I'll come back and, and answer that. And then the second one is off top, off the topic. And that is, what if you are an officer and you quit your job? How hard is it to get back onto another agency if you decide to get back into the profession? Well, you know, I'll, I'll answer the the last question you asked, L.A., about if you are a police officer, you quit your job, how hard is it to get back into the profession? Uh, for some people, it's not that hard. I think, you know, uh, sometimes we've seen, you know, uh, certain individuals, you know, they go from agency to agency, uh, whether it, they've done some things at one agency uh, and that's led them to leave that agency and to go to another, or maybe they're just not satisfied with the type of leadership at that agency, and they uh, uh, decide to go somewhere else. So I guess it just depends upon uh, that individual officer and uh, why they are actually why did they actually um, you know quit one agency. Uh, and or if they decided to, and I've known some people in LA who have actually gotten out of the profession for a number of years and got into the private sector and decided that they wanted to come back and they were able to, of course, go back through all of the the, the training and everything uh, to become, you know, get recertified. So uh, it, it's not that hard, but there are some individuals who, uh, for some reason, they, Keith, I think they have a have an easier opportunities than others. And, and really quick, uh, too comfortable before you answer that. I guess uh, your profession is just like that. So if you're in the same um, industry, I mean, in, in a different industry, like if I'm in in broadcasting, if I leave the industry, I guess I got to come back and understand the software and all that, and, and get some formal training. So you just don't jump back in. You got to go back through to the ranks. Is it if you left as a sergeant? You got to go down and train, or you come back and train and start just to, to have 30 guys. LA, you were you were cutting out. I couldn't hear you. My, my and I was saying, uh, Chief Green was just saying, you know, if you leave and you come back, you got to go back through some kind of certification. So, do you come back and start and go do started training, or you go back to the and then jump in? How does it work? Well, every every state is different. 
every 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 state is different depending on how long that you're out. I mean, some states say that if you leave the organ, if you leave, you have a year. You still you have a year to come back before you have to go back through the academy and get retrained. Some say up to two years. Um, there's continuing education courses that you have to take. I know that if we if someone leaves our our department, I do know that they um, come back, have to go through some forms, methods of in-service uh, in training, and not just in-service training, uh, they also have to go back and ride with a field training officer to ensure that they are up to par on um, policies, current policies and procedures. So every every place is different, but, you know, when you've gone, uh, it's sort of like a barber. You know, if you don't keep up your um, skills, uh, skills diminished. The thing about the difference between the two uh, is that uh, it can be deadly. It can be extremely dangerous for 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 us uh, if we not if we don't keep up with the right skills, right training, and things like that. Well, you know, Keith. You know, we talked about this uh, on a previous podcast show about training of police officers. If we, if you remember, where we talked about how certain states have very uh, limited uh, training requirements for police officers, and some states have higher training uh, requirements for police officers, or some agencies even exceed what the state requires, such as, you know, like in, in Little Rock, where you guys require actually more training than what the state uh, uh requires an officer to go through in an academy. And so, you know, I, I know in Arkansas, I think you, if you're out of, uh, if you're out of, if you have been inactive for over, I believe, two years, you have to go back through a refresher uh, through the, uh, through ALITA, through, which is the, the state academy down in Camden, Arkansas. And so other states are different. Uh, in Oklahoma, you can be uh, inactive for, I believe, up to three or I think maybe five years. And anything after that, you have to go back through a, a refresher uh, uh, academy. And so, uh, you know, again, every state is different. And so some have different requirements. But I think when we talk about the, the leadership training, Keith, we are talking about individuals who to these positions who may not, who should not be put in, into those positions, but once they are put in those positions, uh, oftentimes it's kind of hard to get, you know, to remove a person from that position unless you've got, you know, where it's a, you know, uh, a mayor hires a police chief or a city manager hires them and they, you know, do something to, to be removed from that position. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's a lot of pressure. So, on, it's a lot of, yeah. yeah so no, Keith, let me ask you this. When we talk, when we talk about, you know, leadership, you know, oftentimes this is a position that you and I know that you want to do your best, and you put everything into it. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think for the, the, the our listeners that you have you 
there are police chiefs out there who do recognize when there is a failure in their leadership. There is an active omission that, hey, I didn't do something right. I'm going to own up to it. But then what happens, Keith, when you have those ineffective leaders who don't own up to those things that have occurred? Um, it's not a good thing. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it, uh, it, it, it snowballs. Uh, it uh, shows a lack of courage, and so it's not a very good thing. Um, you know, they don't hire us to make the easy decisions, uh, and there, there are some that just won't make a decision point blank, and so it's not easy. It's not easy at all. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's not a good thing for an individual not to make a decision, um, and uh, people recognize that. The, the troops are watching and the community is watching, so it's just it's interesting that um, it's interesting, very interesting um, uh, that um, you know people want the job, but they don't want to uh, they don't want the responsibilities that come with the job. That's very disappointing. Well, it is, Keith, and I think you know and I think that's why so many people uh, really have a lot of respect for individuals who are put in the positions as a police chief or even as a deputy chief, uh, because they they know this individual, and but they're seeing a different side than what uh, than, than what uh, the, the public is seeing. And so there's two, you know, as a leader, you're wearing, you know, it's, you know, we've talked about this, Keith, where being a police chief is really no, it's almost like being a, a coach uh, in the NFL or the NBA. You know, if you're not winning games, then you're going to be considered ineffective. You don't have a good game plan together, uh, and you're going to be replaced, just like with a police chief. If crime is, is, is bad, if there's a lot of homicides going on, things that you and I know that you cannot control, you're going to be looked at as that, you're ineffective, you're an ineffective leader, and you're going to be uh, removed, and somebody else is going to be put into that that position. So uh, oftentimes people think that, you know, hey, once you become a police chief, man, it's easy. It is not, Keith. I mean, you know, as we talked with our guests with a couple of weeks ago, being a leader uh, is someone who you're always trying to become a better leader. Right. You are. Uh, it's, a, it's a learning. It's a lifetime. Uh, it's a, you have to be a student of the profession and realize it's a lifetime thing. It's not just a one. You can't turn it on or off. Uh, it's, it's, it's full speed all the time. So I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah. Well, hey, Keith, we got a question from L.A. I think we uh, may have overlooked the question earlier. So, L.A., uh, what was the question that you had one of our listeners uh, wanted to ask? Yeah, basically they were asking, uh, uh, how do you deal with nepotism? Like if you have relatives okay. working at your agency, um, you know, you have the discipline. Them. I think Chief Hump had talked about it a little bit. Um, you got to do your job. But but also the, the, the backlash that goes into it. I mentioned my cousin. I had to fire him, and, you know, I think he thinks he's saying I'm all that. And what about when they also say, you know, when they use the race card against you? Oh, you the 
you the uh the the the, the house negro or the field negro like uh you you've been hobnobbing with the the europeans i call them and and you don't lost your way you know man we it's amazing I, i've gone through that um I've gone through that where, you know, put a nepotism policy in place. And, man, it got a lot. I mean, that's where some of my pushback and some of my um, issues started, uh, nepotism policy, because you, 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 you can't have relatives working with each other, for each other. You can't do that. I mean, even if you're trying to, the, just the perception alone, but blood is thicker than water. And, uh, you know, what I always tell people is that you you telling me, that if uh, two siblings working together in a car and something happens and one of the siblings does something in violation of policy, there is a possibility. I didn't say probability. There is a possibility that blood, the bloodline is going to kick in and they're going to be protected. They're going to protect their – not saying that's going to always happen, but just the fact of not allowing that um, lets it be – you know, it, it makes it a lot cleaner. Um, you hope, but there has to be a strong policy in place um, that everyone understands that this is what we're not going to do. This is what we're going to allow. This is what we're not going to do. Yes, it, 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 it just doesn't look good. It, it doesn't pass the smell test when you don't have a nepotism policy and you allow nepotism within your organization. I came from an organization that you couldn't even work inside, even if you weren't a police officer, you couldn't even have a, a relative work inside the police department. The only way you could be related if you were married uh, while working there, but you couldn't, um, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't have cousins. Uh, I, I, me being there, uh, me working there, I couldn't even have a cousin to come and work there. Uh, I didn't understand mm-hmm. that at first, but as a police chief, I totally get it. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's just like with any profession, Keith. You know, we're coming up on the last few minutes of the of the of the show, but with any other profession, you know, just like you know, in the fast food industry, you know, you've got a uh, a cousin, and he or she has hired multiple other family members, and all of a sudden something happens at this fast food place, and the next thing you know, everybody walks out, and everybody walks out because the cousin is the manager or the assistant manager, and everybody feels like, well, you you done my family member wrong, so we're all leaving. You know, so I think that's why you have to have those things in place, even in the private sector, but in the public sector, in in this sector, you really have to have those nepotism policies in place because of you may have a relative that works in records who may have access to information and all of a sudden they're giving out information that they shouldn't be. Uh, and then somebody finds out, well, that's so-and-so's cousin. Well, how did that happen? And so that's why those safeguards need to be put in place, especially in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the public sector, especially in policing uh, because of, individuals having access to certain uh, confidential information. Uh, Keith, man, we're, we're coming up on the last few minutes of the show, man. It's, it's been another great uh, podcast, uh, broadcast, and, uh, you know, I think uh, our listeners would appreciate the fact that we're talking about ineffective leadership or 
individuals who are doing everything everything they can to become great leaders in their organizations? Well, I think we got a lot of great leaders out there, Virgil, and and I think I feel I, I think I I think we're going to bounce back in this profession and be the the um, you know the the pride of of so many different communities. Uh, I think it's coming back. I see some signs of that, but yeah, man, it, it's a difficult job. Not a lot of people do it. I believe you're called to do it. I don't think it's a. I don't think you just chosen i don't think you just pop up one day and do it because everybody can't do it but i think it's a calling uh some people exactly the phone is some people the phone is answered some people they keep getting a busy signal so i you know uh anyway that's that's all i gotta say all right well hey man we want to thank everyone for listening to you and the law on the bachelor news radio network Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.